but let me just say a word of prayer uh, over the remainder of our service. Heavenly Father, Lord, <clears throat> we thank you so much, God. I just thank you for uh, what has already happened in this service, God, that we have been able to, to sit um, under such uh, beautiful talents of justice um, as he leads us uh, through through music and through singing, through worship, God. I thank you for just the the, the prayerful heart, God, that you've given to Jean Sue, uh, that she could pray your words over us this morning. And Lord, I pray now that you'd be with Carmita as she reads your words to us, God, sacred holy words. Uh, I pray that that you'd be with her, that you would you would ease any um, distractions from her, God, that she would speak with clarity so that your words, not hers, but that your words would pierce us, God. And I pray similarly for Mark. I just thank you for his um, willingness to, to come to this new uh, church and to to shepherd us, Lord, as we continue to to seek your uh, your to, to seek how you're speaking to us, Lord, through the book of Acts. So, Lord, I pray you'd be with him. Uh, bless his preparation and bless his words this morning. And Lord, we pray all of these things with expectant hearts. We pray all of these things uh, in the name of, of, of your son, Jesus Christ. We pray. Amen. Carmita. Thank you, Chuck. Acts 10, verses 1 to 20. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord, he asked. The angel answered, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up, have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. He's staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants, a devout soldier, and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up to the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven open and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals, as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out, asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you. So get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. The word of the Lord. Thank you very much for reading that passage for us. Um, let me go ahead and get us started here. For those of you who have not met me yet, um, and at first I wanna thank Chuck for inviting me to preach. And I wanna thank my friend, Lisa uh, Herzog, who her and I have was saying earlier in the service, uh, we've known each other since college. Um, we were on the same floor in college and did ministry together through InterVarsity and have stayed in, in contact, actually got reconnected a little more uh, intentionally a few years ago. And uh, she's with her in New York and me in DC, we've been able to talk about some things and just share some of what God's been doing in our lives for the past several years. And so it's been really fun to connect with her again and thank her for, uh, for even telling me about the church and for Chuck's invitation to preach today. Uh, 
In the Navajo culture, when we introduce ourselves, we always give our four clans. So let me start by introducing myself in Navajo. Yate, Mark Charles Yenishia, Sinbake Dinet Nishlin, Dotohiglini Bashishin, Sinbake Dinet Dashche, Dotorichi, Dashinella. So in our Navajo culture, we're matrilineal, and our identities come from our, our mother's mother. And so my mother's mother is American of Dutch heritage, which is why I say Sinbake Dinet Nishlin. Loosely translated, that means I'm from the Wooden Shoe people. My second clan, my father's mother, is Tohiglini, which is the waters that flow together. My third clan, my mother's father, is also Tsinbake Dene'a. And then my fourth clan, my father's father, is Totochitni, and that's the Bitterwater clan. It's one of the original clans of our Navajo people. I appreciated the land acknowledgement you did for the for the uh, Lenape before your service. Uh, I'm, I'm very honored that you did that to honor the, the people indigenous to the lands where you're living. I am living in what's now known as Washington, D.C., and these are the lands of the Piscataway. So the Piscataway are the nation that they were living here and hunting here, farming here and fishing here long before Columbus got lost at sea, and they're still here. I've had the honor of meeting some of the, of the Piscataway. I've been welcomed to these lands by the Piscataway, and I want to honor them as the indigenous hosts of this land. And I want to publicly state how humbled I am to be living on these lands today. Um, as Chuck said, I, I published a book a few weeks ago, or a few years ago, a year and a half ago, um, with a good friend of mine. His name is Sing Chan Ra. It's titled Unsettling Truths, the Ongoing Dehumanizing Legacy of the Doctrine of Discovery. We're not going to be talking about a lot of the stuff in that book, but I will maybe be referring to a few things in there as well. And so um, it may come up a few times. It's really shaped a lot of my thinking and how I even have been in this process of decolonizing my own faith. And I was actually really excited when, when Chuck called me to preach because I have been pondering literally for the last almost seven or eight months now, maybe even nine months, the book of Acts. And it has been troubling me and it's been changing my understanding of how I relate to God. And it's been a very transformative last half to three quarters of a year as I've really pondered literally the chapters 10 and 11 of Acts. And it made me have a whole different respect or even value for Pentecost Sunday. And so if you would have told me three months ago that I would have the opportunity to preach at a church on the book of Acts, chapters 10 and 11, on Pentecost Sunday, I would have said that's like a dream come true. And so the fact that we're here and I have a chance to talk to you about this passage is very exciting to me. Now, this passage is very straightforward. And I have to warn you, first of all, um, I may see if, say a few things. Actually, I will say several things that will be very disruptive to your faith. Um, we need to learn to not be afraid of that. We've been conditioned to think that we should always feel safe and comfortable when it comes to our faith. And that's not what the scriptures tell us. The, the scriptures tell us we will actually be challenged and pruned and sharpened and even, even repulsed by these scriptures at various times. We have to expect that as we study them, as we read them, as we engage with them together. Um, and so I encourage you to stay, stay with me. I'm not going to well, I will leave you a bit perplexed at the end of this service, but we'll pick it up next week and we'll we'll go a little bit deeper. Um, but I am I am taking you somewhere where I think is going to be really really fulfilling for what we need to do and even what your vision to do as a church is. Um, the other thing that we need to to do for the service is this is a narrative passage, right? This is just a, a story. And we have two parts of the story. We have Cornelius and we have Peter. And it's fairly straightforward, right? Cornelius sees a vision telling him to go find Peter. Peter sees a vision telling him to go find Cornelius. And it's kind of like God's playing matchmaker here a little bit, you know, and he's giving them both a vision and saying, you know, you're going to get together. And he has more challenges to face with Peter than he does with Cornelius because Cornelius is a Gentile. Cornelius is not a part of the Jewish community. And for Peter to go out and actively, intentionally engage a Gentile is actually really, really challenging and even unthinkable to someone raised as Peter was raised. 
And so part of what I have to do for you to get you to understand how perplexing this story is, is I have to, I have to get you to understand two things very clearly, first of all. The first is, the longer you're in the church, the less likely you are going to re be reading the Bible correctly. We actually condition people to read the Bible incorrectly. And I'm going to prove that to you in just a moment. Second, um, we need to understand how deeply troubling and perplexing this vision was for Peter. And so I, my job in the next 20 minutes is to help you, A, prove to you we don't read the Bible correctly, and then B, help you step into, into the uncomfortableness that Peter is feeling in this passage. So to accomplish the first goal, I want to think about a book most of us probably have some familiar with, especially if you've been in the church for a while, which is the book of Exodus, the story of God taking the people of Israel out of Egypt and bringing them to their promised land. Now, we've read this story on many occasions throughout the church calendar. We talk about it. This is kind of the golden age of God when he's really doing powerful things and working in strong ways to establish the identity of the people of Israel. He brings them out of Egypt with force. He has sends Moses in with this incredible staff. He does these 10 plagues. Pharaoh finally relents and he lets the people of Israel go out into the wilderness. They go to Mount Sinai. They worship God there. God gives them the law, including the 10 commandments. And then he sends them towards their promised land. And as they're going, God actually tells them, go this way. And so they're going the specific direction that God told them to go. And soon they come across the Red Sea. And they see this massive sea in front of them. And then they look behind them. And God has hardened Pharaoh's heart. And they see these chariots coming towards them. And the people of Israel are hopeless. Right? They lose all hope that God's going to help them. They tell Moses, we told you to let us stay in Egypt. It would have been better to be slaves in Egypt than corpses out here in the desert. They lose all hope that Moses or God is going to do anything to protect them. Now, Moses, who has not been a very confident leader, right? He, he, God, he didn't want to follow God when God said to go lead. He said, I can't speak well, send someone else. Moses has not been very confident. And he sees the situation, and he actually tells the people to trust in God. And I want to read the passage that, that where he speaks to them. In Exodus chapter 14, Moses says to the people who have just said we'd rather be corpses in the desert. He says, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You only need to be still, right? I mean, this is like faith 101. This is every Christian, every follower of God, every believer should say, yes, this is what we're supposed to do. When we see trouble, when we see obstacles in our way, when we see what appears to be hopeless, we should remind ourselves of God. We should stand still. We should call out on the Lord and wait for him to save us. You can almost hear King David Writing Psalm 21 or 27, reflecting on this very passage. Psalm 27 says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked advance against me and to devour me, it is my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then I will be confident. One thing I ask from the Lord that this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. For in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his sacred tent. He will set me high on a rock. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. At his sacred tent, I will sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. Hear my voice when I call, Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. Do not reject me or forsake me. 
God, my Savior. Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Teach me your way, Lord. Lead me in a straight path because of my oppressors. Oppressors, Do not turn me over to the desires of my foes, to false for false witnesses will rise up against me, spouting malicious accusations. I remain confident in this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. Right? This is the most faithful prayer you could possibly imagine. When Moses sees the Egyptians coming at them, when the people have lost hope, when they completely expect that they're going to die and be left as corpses in the desert, Moses reminds them to trust in the Lord and to wait for the Lord to save them. You would think God would see this prayer and he would... Be so grateful that his servant Moses had such amazing faith and encouraged the people to call out to their God. That's what you would think. But verse 15 says, Then the Lord said to Moses, What are you crying out to me for? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the waters so that the Israelites can go on the sea to dry ground. <laughs> Think about this. Moses is rebuke. God is rebuking Moses for telling the people to wait for the Lord. See, earlier in this passage, when they came out of Egypt, God said to Moses, go this way. I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. He's going to come after you. Don't be afraid. I'll take care of you. He, Moses had this amazing staff, right? He had done all these miracles with it in Egypt. Moses has this staff as they're marching forward. They get to the Red Sea. Moses sees the hopelessness of his people and drops down on his knees. And God says, what are you crying out to me for? They're going to kill you. You have that staff. You saw what it did in Egypt. Take it out for a test drive. He's rebuking Moses for not coming up with the idea of parting the Red Sea himself. Right? This should shake us to our bones. That God did not affirm Moses for seeking him in prayer but said, why didn't you trust the word I already gave you and the tools I already gave you and use them creatively? So we have to be careful. Just when we think we know all the right answers, just when we think we understand God completely, just when we think we have this Christian thing down pat, God is going to come in and throw a wrench into all of our study, all of our learned, all the stuff we've, we've built our patterns on, and to say, there's something you don't get yet. Right? I think this is why the psalmist later says, your ways are higher than my ways. I don't understand you, God. I don't know what's going on. I don't think like you. I don't comprehend you. So we have to be careful. We've been trained through pat answers and simple sermons to read the scriptures incorrectly and to not allow ourselves to be perplexed by the things that God actually wants to do. So when we come to this passage in Acts chapter 10, You've already gone through the first 10 chapters of Acts, and you know some of the great things that God's done, and you knew what happened after the Pentecost on Acts 2 and the community God built up there, and we've, we've studied all these things. We've looked at them very closely. But there's something new going on here. First of all, Cornelius is literally the first Gentile that we see who's a part or who wants to be a part of the faith community. He's the first Gentile. We see people from other nations in Acts 2, but those are all converts to Judaism. They've all been circumcised. They all keep kosher. They all go to synagogue. They all read the Torah. 
They all follow the law. They're all culturally Jewish. That Acts 2 community, they're all assimilated to Judaism. Cornelius is the first true Gentile. He hasn't been circumcised. He doesn't go to synagogue. The only thing we know about him is that he fears God and he gives money to the poor. And he has the respect of the people around him. We also are told he's a centurion in the Roman army, meaning he actually has a command over people. He's probably actually been actively engaged in continuing the oppression of the Jewish people. He is technically an enemy of the Jewish people. And so one day he's praying and he sees a vision from God. And God tells him to go and seek the guidance of one of the people that they're oppressing. Right? This is, this is a bit challenging for Cornelius because this is not what you would think. He's the centurion in the, in the ruling empire. And now this God, who he doesn't know by name, he's just following God and he sees a Holy Spirit from God, a holy angel from God. He knows it's, the, it's God who he's worshiping. And God tells him to go and seek one of those he is oppressing to get his guidance on what to do next. And Cornelius obeys. He calls his servants, one of his trusted soldiers, and he sends them out to go find Peter. Now, Peter, on the other hand, he's staying in Joppa. And he is a, is a Jew. And his law, the law of his faith, commands him to keep separate from the Gentiles commands him to eat differently, to dress differently, to worship differently, to not intermarry, to not even go into the house or share table with Gentiles. He has been told his entire life to live separately from the Gentiles. And diet is one of the huge differences. I remember I spent several, a few, several weeks in Egypt and in, in Israel um, about a decade ago. And I lived with a man who ministered within the Orthodox Jewish community. And so he had to keep kosher. And what struck me there is how so much of your life and even the setup of society is around dietary law. Keeping meat and dairy separate, having, you know, keeping clean and unclean separate. Like it's a very big deal. I was surprised at how central it was to just everyday life. So much that every restaurant is either dairy or meat, right? You rarely will you have, so even a McDonald's would be a dairy or a meat. It wouldn't be, you, you would rarely have both, you know? And so, so much of the society was structured even today around these dietary laws. They were very restrictive and very definitive of how you're supposed to live. And so Peter sees this blanket coming down with all types of animals, both clean and unclean, on this blanket. And he also hears a voice from heaven, God, telling him to kill some of these animals and eat them. Now, Peter, who has been raised a Jew his entire life, has kept kosher his entire life, he says, and this is, think about this. He says, never, Lord. I've never eaten anything unclean. Now, we read that, right? And we're like, well, we immediately think back to maybe Mark chapter 7. In Mark chapter 7, Jesus declares all foods clean. Correct? He's giving a teaching. He says, all foods are clean. Mark is very specific in his gospel to point that out. Jesus, with this statement, declared all foods were clean. Now, here's Peter, who was with Jesus from the beginning, who traveled with him, who ministered with him, who went out on his behalf, who studied under his teachings for over three years, and he is definitively saying, we never ate anything like this before. I've never eaten anything unclean. Right? I've, this is, we have to acknowledge that. So even though Jesus declared all foods clean, apparently they never ate them. We have to note that. 
Peter is being very definitive here. We've never touched those foods before. God says to him, what I'm calling clean, don't you dare call unclean. And he sees this vision three times. And he's pondering this. Like, what, what does, right? His whole world is crashing down. What does this mean? How, how, what am I, like his, everything is like being rearranged in front of his eyes right here. And you can kind of see this, this crisis going on in him because everything he was taught to lead, even apparently what Jesus modeled for him is now being countered. Now, I want to help you understand how deeply troubling this is. One of the reasons I like this passage is it reminds me a lot of my own life. One of the questions I get frequently, my mother is American of Dutch heritage, my father is Navajo. I get questioned about my faith from both sides of the family. My Navajo people, other Native Americans, Mark, how can you follow this Christian faith? They set up the boarding schools. They, in, they justify the genocide enacted against our people. They wrote the doctrine of discovery. How can you possibly be a part of this faith? Right? My grand, my, the reason my family on my father's side is Christian is because my grandmother was taken from her home and put into a boarding school. In boarding schools, they were punished for speaking their languages. They were punished for practicing their culture. My grandmother never talked to me about her boarding school days, but I've sat down with many, many boarding school survivors. The stories of abuse, physical, mental, psychological, emotional, sexual, that they endured rips my heart apart. My grandmother was a boarding school survivor. She was converted to Christianity in the boarding school. I had another friend who died a few years ago. He was also a boarding school survivor. He converted to Christianity too. You know why? Because you learned that once you said the prayer, you got more food at dinner. My grandmother converted to Christianity in the boarding school. She went home and told her father about it. And her father, my great-grandfather, when he heard apparently about Jesus, he said, I've never fully accepted our traditional beliefs, but the God you're describing to me is the God I want to worship. And so he became a Christian too. And my grandmother helped found one of the early churches on the reservation. My grandfather, who was also a boarding school survivor, worked as a translator for the early missionaries. There's many stories I've heard from my father about his struggles to be a true peer among the white missionaries because they saw him as less than, as savage, and didn't trust his ability to teach or to even translate well. But my grandfather translated several songs into the Navajo language. He even helped translate the Bible. As I got older and started to own both my own faith and my culture, I began working to how do we contextualize native Christian faith for native culture. I got involved with the World Christian Gathering on Indigenous Peoples. We met with people all over the world. I, I pastored a church where we began asking, what does it mean to be native and be Christian? I started a, 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 a student conference with InterVarsity and crew called Would Jesus Eat Fry Bread? to create a space where native students could come together and ask questions about their faith. Why? Because if they went to their churches, they would be told you can't do that. See, my grandparents converted, but they absolutely bought the lie that their culture was evil. They didn't teach the language to my father. They didn't teach the ceremonies to my father and my aunt. I grew up learning very little about my culture because my father knew very little about it. 
because that's what they were told. Being Navajo is evil. We have to become American. We have to give up our laughing parties and our, 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 our prayers to the, at, at sunrise and seeking Hojon, and we have to instead embrace the Easter Bunny and Santa Claus. Most of the pushback I get about contextualizing worship for native culture doesn't come from white people. It comes from people from native Christians from my father and my grandfather's generations who were converted into boarding school and bought the lie that being native is evil. My grandfather, I hope he would be thrilled with what I'm doing, but I don't have that guarantee. And so that's the struggle on my father's side. On my mother's side, right, they have been in the church for who knows how many generations. They were a part of the, the, the Christian Reformed Church, which came out of the Dutch Reformed Church, which, I mean, that goes back generations and generations. I was raised in the CRC. The CRC sent missionaries to New Mexico. They actually started a boarding school and ran a boarding school for 70 years. My mom came to that mission as a nurse, which is where she met my father and married one of the savages that they were sent there to minister to. So my other side has always, has been deeply a part of white evangelicalism. So part of me owning my own faith, and this happened for me in college, was getting to know Jesus very personally. And Jesus became my point of safety, right? And we started the conference because I said, yes, Jesus would eat fry bread. And my, the white evangelical church struggled with my teaching because I was taking Jesus too seriously, right? He, I, wasn't, I wasn't being nice enough. I, wasn't, I, wasn't, I, was taking, I was being too radical. And so Jesus became much more, and the way I framed it is in college, Jesus went from being my luggage to becoming my Lord. And I learned how to, and Jesus led me in some wild stuff. We moved from, or we were, I was pastoring a church in Denver, and we moved from there to the Navajo Nation, lived for 11 years on the reservation, three years in Hogan, six miles off the nearest paved road on a dirt road, no running water, no electricity, out in the middle of nowhere. We became little freaks to Western American culture. And all that was because we followed Jesus. And he was leading us into these spaces and he was opening up my eyes. Half of the research in my book on settling truth comes from living on the reservation and experiencing the marginalization and the ongoing oppression and the fruits of the historical oppression against my people. And so following Jesus has been there have been over the course of my life and ministry, nearly every institution I partnered with, nearly every person I sought as a mentor or to some kind of guide me spiritually, at one point or another, they all basically turned to me and said, you can't say that. You can't talk about those things. You can't bring those things up. You're going to fail at trying to bring these things together. You're going to, you're, I'm not even going to help you. I'm going to wash my hands of you. I heard that over and over and over. And in the midst of all this, Jesus was my safety, right? He was the one who, who made me safe to my native peoples because I wasn't a part of this institutionalized religion. I was following Jesus. And Jesus was the one who was, his leadership in my life was the one that was turning the even, white evangelical church against me. And so I was pointing all of this emotion towards Jesus. If you haven't heard, last, last year I ran as an independent candidate for president of the United States. And the vision of my campaign was to build a nation where for the very first time, we the people truly means all the people. I wanted to remove the racism, the sexism, and the white supremacy embedded by the doctrine of discovery into the foundations of our country. And that was my vision. 
That was why I was running. It was deeply coming out of my faith, but I was not running to make my nation Christian. I wasn't running because I was ordained by God. I was running because I wanted some of this equality and some of this, this, this life that I was experiencing through my relationship with God. I wanted to see my nation and the church acknowledge the humanity of the rest of this country. And that was one of my, so I wasn't running to, because God told me I was going to be president. I was running though, because the values I was gaining from my faith, I wanted to see at least our nation acknowledge the humanity of all of our citizens. Now, a year, nine months ago, I was sitting right back here. There's the couch here. And I was praying. And again, I wasn't expecting God to make me president, but I also acknowledged I was running for some things that I thought were closely aligned with God's heart. And I was praying to God because I wasn't feeling his partnership in what I was trying to do. I, wasn't, I felt like, yes, the world's ignoring my campaign. The world's not paying attention to what I'm saying, but I don't also see you, God, helping bring some of these things to light. And I was wrestling with God. I was struggling with God. And I was praying to God, God, how am I supposed to relate to you? Right? I've spent my entire life relating to you through Jesus. And I, I, how am I supposed to relate to you? Jesus, where are you? What are we supposed to be doing here? How am I supposed to engage this? And God, I don't know, I'm not going to say he spoke to me, but I said that prayer, and the first thought that comes to my mind is the story from Matthew, chapter 15, the Canaanite woman, right? This woman who comes to, to Gentile woman, who comes to Jesus seeking the healing of her son. And Jesus says to her, why would I give to the dogs what was meant for the children? Now, I've been in the church all my life. I've been raised in the church. I've pastored in the church. I've studied the scriptures. I've done the theological gymnastics necessary to make Jesus look good in that passage. But I'm also running a campaign right now where I'm telling people, if we don't deal with what our constitution actually says, we're never going to fix the problem. Right. Joe Biden loves to misquote the, the Declaration of Independence. He loves to say we hold the truth to be self-evident that all men and women are created equal. That sounds beautiful. It's a great vision. It's not what it says. It says men. And then it goes on to call native savages. So I say we have to deal with what it says so we can actually address the problems that arose from that. The same thing with the Constitution. Right. We've never abolished slavery. It excludes women. Counts Africans as three-fifths. Doesn't, doesn't mention women. Excludes natives. And so I'm sitting there, and I, I'm looking at this passage, and I say, what if I actually allow this passage to say what it appears to say? What if I allow this passage to say, maybe Jesus healed the ethnocentric views of his time? Right, which is he came for the Jewish people. He had almost zero regard for Gentiles. Well, then suddenly this passage doesn't take gymnastics to make sense. It just makes sense, right? This is how the Jewish people thought of the Gentiles. They didn't matter. In fact, their law told them to be separate from the Gentiles, to not go to them, to not intermarry with them, to not eat at share table with them. They're, they were commanded by their laws to remain separate. So I said, okay, what if Jesus held those ethnocentric views? Well, this passage makes more sense, but now I'm troubled, right? Because, wait, Jesus, aren't you the guy who loves everybody? So then I'm thinking, okay, are there other passages where he engages with Gentiles? Well, there's two more. He's, he's approached by another centurion who wants him to heal his servant. And Jesus goes, he's walking towards his, this centurion's house. The centurion 
understands authority and comes outside. He knows that if Jesus goes into his house, he's going to become unclean. He has to go through all these rites of purification to leave. He's going to be questioned by his own people. So he comes out and he says, hey, you don't have to come in. You can do this remotely. Jesus, okay. He heals the servant remotely. And then he turns around to the Jewish people who are following him. And he says, I tell you in all of Israel, I haven't seen such faith before. Now, this sounds affirming, right? This sounds affirming. But imagine if he were to say that in another context, right? Imagine if the pastor, the male pastor of a church, invited one of the women of his church to preach. And after they got up and preached a very theologically sound and challenging sermon, he stood up and looked at the men and said, man, you men can't even preach that way. It sounds affirming, but it's passive aggressive, right? We didn't expect this. It sound, it's passive aggressive. And second, Jesus never goes into the guy's house. When he's approached by a Jewish leper who says, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Jesus not only heals him, but he touches him. You would think Jesus, seeing this tremendous faith of the centurion, would reward him by walking into his house. But he doesn't. He stays outside. So he's not this overly welcoming person to this Gentile. The other interaction with Gentiles we have is the, the, the demoniac in the, in the Gospel of Luke. Here this Gentile man possessed by demons come to Jesus. Jesus heals him. And then the demoniac begs Jesus to let him follow him. Begs him, we're told. And Jesus says no. He says no. In Mark 5, verses 18 and 19, said, um, as Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed, had been demon-possessed, begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you. Think about that. A Gentile begged Jesus to let him follow him. And Jesus said no. Right, so this is troubling because I'm a Gentile to the Jews and I'm a savage to Western Christians. My whole life, I've believed Jesus is my safe place. I've imagined myself following Jesus even 2,000 years ago. And so when I'm reading this and acknowledging that Jesus is not very inclusive to Gentiles, he calls the woman a dog. He's passive-aggressive with the centurion, and he does not let the demoniac follow him. I'm like, wow, had I met Jesus 2,000 years ago, he probably wouldn't have liked me very much. Now, this is troubling, right? I'm, I'm almost beginning to panic at this point. So I'm like, well, where then do I, do us, because we're all Gentiles, right? And I don't know if anyone's Jewish in here, but most of us on this call are Gentiles. Where do we get included? Where is it said that the Gentiles are included in this message? So I've used Acts 2 as an example of people from all over the world coming to, coming to faith. And yes, we have the, the disciples speaking the languages of the nations. We have, Jew, we have Christians from all over the world coming together into this Acts 2 community, but they're all Jewish. They are all Jewish. They all have converted to Judaism. They all have assimilated to the Jewish culture. They all have been, the men have been circumcised. They all go to synagogue. They all keep kosher. They all use Hebrew in, 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 as their language of worship. This is why they're surprised when they hear this being proclaimed in their own tongue, right? Because that's not how this religion works. So they're perplexed. But that Acts 2 community is all Jewish. So then I'm like, well, how about the calling of Saul? Well, call, Saul is called, but then he immediately runs off to be mentored by the apostles. He doesn't go straight to the Gentiles. He goes to be mentored by the Jewish apostles. 
And that's where this passage comes in. And this is the first time. And so I get to this passage and I'm like, okay, well, here we have a Gentile. And so when I'm reading through this passage and I'm reading, so now I've gone through all of that journey, right? And I'm like, okay, Jesus is not very inclusive of Gentiles. And I get to this passage and then I see, I, I read about the blanket being dropped down and I read about Peter saying, I've never eaten anything unclean. This is where it finally dawned on me. I'm like, oh my gosh, he's been with Jesus for his entire ministry. Jesus declared all foods clean, but they never ate them. They never ate anything unclean. And I'm like, holy crap, what does this mean? What does this mean? Right? I had to speak. Last November, at the conference I started, I, I helped found, would Jesus eat fry bread? And I had to tell my students, I don't think he would have. I have no proof in scripture that Jesus would have eaten Gentile food. And I was left, to, what does that mean? For my faith, is Jesus safe? What, what, where do I really get included? And this is where, right? We have to remember one of the gospels that is written specifically for Gentiles is the gospel of John. It's probably the gospel I know the least. I've studied it the least. I've, I've, I've read it, but I've studied it the least. I'm gaining a heightened interest in john because it's written to the gentiles now there's two interesting things about john a john is the only one who goes really in depth to the holy spirit and b he's the only gospel that doesn't include an interaction with a gentile which is interesting right because you think if you're writing a story to gentiles about how much jesus loves the whole world you might include a few stories of jesus radically loving gentiles unless there aren't any so why then does john focus on the holy spirit so much in fact not only does does he say talk about the Holy Spirit more, but he says in John 14, Jesus tells the disciples through the Holy Spirit, you will actually do greater things than me. And in John 16, he says, it's actually better for you that I leave. Because if I don't leave, you cannot get the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus seems to believe he has this mindset and john in his gospel written to gentiles talks about how after jesus comes there's going to be something even greater and the people following him will do even more and this is even going to be better than having jesus and that thing is the holy spirit and so when the holy spirit comes in acts chapter 2 to this all jewish community that has been assimilated and circumcised and they keep kosher and they follow the law and they go to synagogue and all the things you're supposed to do to be Jewish. And the spirit decides, right? The spirit could have, Peter could have stood up and preached in Hebrew and everybody would have understood him. Everybody would have understood him. They were all converts to Judaism. And this is probably what they expected. But the Holy Spirit enables the disciples to speak the languages of the nations. This would be like if my grandparents went to boarding school and the teacher started teaching them in Navajo. My son, we moved to the Navajo reservation. We lived there and my son and daughters attended a Navajo immersion school where they were taught in our language. And one day when my son was in maybe the second or third grade, we were sitting with one of my aunts 
who was also a boarding school survivor and she, she retained her language. And as we were talking, my son was asking her some questions about pronunciation and how to say things in Navajo because I don't speak it very well. And he was asking her. And my aunt started crying. And she said, do you realize it was 50 years ago, I was being beaten for speaking this language. And now your son is being taught this language in the schools. Like that transformation was mind blowing to her. So when these Jewish people heard the gospel being proclaimed, not in Hebrew, not in Greek, but in their own languages. This is mind-blowing. In fact, they asked, what does this mean? The Spirit then, Jesus appears to Paul and sets him aside as an apostle to the Gentiles. And then in Acts 10, that same spirit appears to Cornelius and tells him to go and seek this guy named Peter. At the same time, he appears to Peter and he says, I know you've never seen this before. You've never eaten anything unclean. But we are now calling all of this clean. And I want you to go, I want you to think about that, right? So he's, he sees that vision three times. This is literally shattering Peter's world. He has never seen this anywhere. And as he's thinking about that, as he's pondering that, Cornelius's servants and soldiers come to his door. And they say, hey, Peter, we were told to come get you. We want you to come with us. What it says, while Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about this vision, the spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you. So get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them. For I have sent them. Peter is now faced with one of the biggest decisions of his entire ministry. Which is what does he do? Does he go with these men into the home of a Gentile? Or does he remain adamant? I've never eaten anything unclean. He could easily have made the argument, I was even with Jesus for three years. And we never did this. And that's where I want to end today. <laughs> because I want us to be perplexed. I want us to to struggle with what was really going on with Peter. Just like I want us to struggle, right? We've been told all our lives, wait on the Lord is the faithful prayer always. But according to Exodus 14, that's not always true. We've been told Jesus loves you. This I know. Red and yellow, black and white, right? These old songs. We're told these things. But we have no biblical proof that Jesus went and radically included anyone who wasn't a Gentile or who wasn't a Jew. 
And so we, we have to struggle with what does this mean? And then for, for me, and this is where I, I want us to ponder these things, how central then is the role of the Holy Spirit? How important is the discipleship, the guidance of the Holy Spirit in our faith in order for us to do what appears the Spirit wants us to do? And I, I'm convinced, and next week we're going to discuss this more about what does this mean and, and, and where, where do we go with this and how do we take it. But for, for the week, I want to encourage you to allow yourself to be perplexed. I want to encourage you to not just dismiss the notion that Jesus might not have held to the ethnocentric views of his time. I want you to ponder what if he actually really did do that, then what does that mean? And what is the narrative that comes out of that? What is the emphasis? What, is, what, how, what does that do to how we proclaim the gospel? And then even how important is a day, especially for the Gentile church, how important is Pentecost Sunday? Let me pray for us. Holy Spirit, you are troubling. You blew apart Peter's worldview in this chapter. And you left him deeply troubled and perplexed. We, we oftentimes read the scriptures and dismiss the things that seem uncomfortable so we can keep a narrative that seems safe. But if we do that, we miss so much. Creator, thank you that you sent your Holy Spirit. Thank you that your Holy Spirit enabled the disciples to speak the languages of the nations. Thank you that your Holy Spirit appeared to Saul and sent him to the Gentiles. Thank you that your Holy Spirit appeared to Cornelius and told him to seek out Peter. And thank you that your Holy Spirit appeared to Peter and told him to take and eat even that which he was taught and modeled was unclean. Thank you that your vision is so much broader, so much more radical, and so much more challenging than we could ever imagine. And I pray that you will help us to reflect on these things this next week so that when we come together, we can truly take a deep look at Peter's response and to have a deeper understanding of how we're to move forward in our walk with you and even in our walk with Jesus. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus, whose blood, his death on the cross, is what opened this door for reconciliation between us and you and allowed your Holy Spirit to come upon the entire world. We pray this in his name. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Mark. And with that prayer, we um, come into this time of, of the Lord's Supper. <clears throat> and I can't imagine better questions to ask on Pentecost Sunday than how important is the role of the Holy Spirit? How important is the discipleship of the Holy Spirit in our faith? And as you all know, um, since we first read it in Acts 2, we, we continue to return to the question, what does this mean? What shall we do? Just as those first century Jews said, after hearing Peter's sermon. And in this moment, I would encourage us to take Mark's advice. What shall we do? Well, at least for this next week, let's sit with this. Let's allow ourselves to be perplexed and let's confront this so that next week and beyond, we may be able to more and more um, understand the importance of the Holy Spirit and its discipleship in our faith. Mark, thank you so much for that word, man. 
Um, let me just encourage us now as we prepare for the table uh, to take a moment of silence, of, of reflection. Uh, as you heard Mark pray that, this, that, that, the, that the shed blood of Jesus opens the possibility for reconciliation with God, the Creator. It opens the gift of the Holy Spirit being descended upon God's people, being given to us. And so as we prepare for this table that, that both acknowledges that but also looks ahead, to what that means. Let's take this moment of silence to, to reflect on what we've heard, to reflect on any questions we have, any confusion we have, any troubling thoughts that we might have, to give those to God, and then to come to the table. So um, just take this next moment of silence to, to prepare yourself for the Lord's table.